0: Lord, I ask that You would take our passage that's in front of us, that You would make it plain, uh, that You would help us to connect the dots between what You've called us out of and what You have called us through and what You have called us for. Lord, I ask that the, uh, our experience of the Gospel would be um, a, an experience that is based, based on the explicit um, explanation of the Gospel in the Scriptures. Um, and our experience would be one that is a, a, a day-to-day and ongoing experience. Lord, I pray that You'd help us to understand more and more that it's, just not, it's not just that we have been saved, but Lord, that You continue to sanctify us and You're going to use us for Your purposes. And I pray You'd help us to understand this morning the great salvation that You delivered to us at such a cost of Your dear Son and the lives that are to result from it. You have purchased us with a precious price, the blood of Jesus Christ. You have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin, and made Him the sin-bearer and the sacrificial lamb for us. Though perfect, He became sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And I pray that the truths of the Gospel sing deep in our heart, Lord, but they would not just sit there and reside and be static, but out of that our out of our lives would flow forth rivers of living water that have been implanted by the Holy Spirit that result in profitable works for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perhaps as you think back over this past week, you can think of things in your life that have changed. And if you think even over last month and the Amazing truth that it's already December and coming to the end of December here, the things that have changed over the last month and remember like in November it was warm and sunny and blue skies and then in December it hit, didn't it? Here these, this past week. The cold and the snow and Perhaps though you look back on 2017 and you look at the things at the beginning of the year and the things that are true of your life now or the things that have happened uh, in your own family or your workplace, your neighborhood or the state or the country or the world and you think, wow, things have changed. Things have shifted. Perhaps you look back five years and see how things have changed. And for the most part, we're generally resistant against change, don't we? We like to have things a certain way. But the truth of the matter is uh, that change is a part of life, isn't it? And the fact that change is, is, is a part of life um, tells us that um, uh, that can be for the good or for the bad. But for the Christian, change is always to be for the good. God intends it to be the, for the good of those who love Him and for His glory. To have a higher platform to be exalted. If you don't like change, I guess they say, by the way, worse than change is irrelevancy. Because one way or the other, things change, don't they? And we all change. We go or arrive there at birth and we live our lives and we get older and then things drastically change, don't they, when we die? But this passage here is all about change. And this passage here is looking at change from God's perspective, from our salvation, and moving us from where we once were to where He desires us to be. And the good news about this passage is, everything that is true here about a person before Christ, if you are a believer, is true about all of you, if you are a believer. Everything that God did for you is true about you. And everything that God will continue to do, you will see become true of you. In Titus chapter 3 verses 1 through 8, our focus here for this morning, it, it, it falls in the heels of Titus chapter 2 where we saw in verses 1 through 10 that important um, uh, aspect of others in uh, uh, develop, helping us to develop our character in our homes, in our workplaces, etc., So that the gospel of God is, is, is put on a platform and it is made more beautiful by our conduct. We've seen in Titus chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 here, God who promised eternal life, he cannot lie, has manifested his word through preaching and he's committed this to Paul. Paul passed it on to Titus and Titus left Paul in Crete so that Paul uh, So that Titus could set in order the things that were in Crete that were lacking, and he could appoint proper leadership over the churches and Crete because Jesus has redeemed the people he has, he has created a new community that are to exhibit the glories of God to the to the unbelievers around them, to show that the gospel does work, it is powerful, it does change lives, but the problem was <coughs> There were people, there were men who were leading the churches in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, who verse 16 says they professed that they knew God, but in works, in their life, the way they lived, they denied him. And Paul said this is why you need proper leadership that meets these qualifications, that is blameless in their homes, blameless in their public life, and is blameless in how they handle the word of God, and they use the word of God to build the church. And so in Titus chapter 2 verse 1 he says, speak you the things which are fitting to, which become or in agreement with sound, healthy, wholesome, doctrine the doctrine of the word of god and it goes through different life stages aged men here's what you're to do aged women here's what you're to do younger women here's what you're to do and here's the instruction you're to receive younger men uh those who are are in the workplace etc here so that in Titus chapter 2 verse 10 it says so that they may adorn or decorate the doctrine of god our savior in all things so that the gospel is shown to be, be- as beautiful as it really is in the way you live and Birch preached verses 11 through 15 of Titus 2 the last time how the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. He has made the way of salvation possible for all men. And out of that, Verse 12 says, He is training us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts so that we live soberly righteous and godly in this present world, whether eyes set on the return of Jesus Christ and our, our, our feet firmly planted in the precious blood of Jesus Christ and His work in the gospel, so that in verse 14, God's work accomplishes something far-reaching. Verse 14 says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify to himself a unique, a special, a peculiar people who are passionate, zealous of good works. And he says, Titus, these things I want you to speak. I want you to uh, exhort. I, I want you to correct where you need to. And you have full authority, apostolic authority from God himself to do these things. Don't let anyone get in your way. And so on the heels of that, we reach Titus chapter 3, verse 1, where he says this. How is this now going to live out? How is the idea of living, um, uh, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and living soberly, righteous and godly in this present world, the world we're all in, this present age, what is that going to look like? In chapter 3, and verse 1, he says this, put them in mind or remind them to be subject to principalities and powers. Rulers and authorities, in other words. To obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness to all men. Here's what he says. He says that a church that has good order, a church that has solid doctrine, now needs to be a church that has good deeds. Good deeds. In other words, good actions that are flowing out of what God has done. And he lays it out like this. First of all, in this passage, we see that Paul insists, and God insists, the Holy Spirit insists, that the church has a new way. A new way. If we have a new birth, we need to have a new way. A new way. And if you sum up these two verses, one and two, it's a new way of humility. You see, a large part of of the public ministry of the Word of God is reminding people what they already know. And so, if you ever hear something that comes in the pulpit um, that you've already that you already know you've already heard before, then I don't feel that bad because Paul tells Titus to remind them of what they already knew, and Peter says to the church he's writing to in Second Peter, I believe he says, "Stir up their memories about these things." Put the member remembers about these things. And so there are things that we need to be reminded of. And the thing that Paul uh, tells Titus, the church in Crete needed to be reminded of, is their attitudes toward authority. Toward government officials. And Titus was to remind these Christians on the island of Crete, off Greece, to be good citizens within their communities. That was a virtue in which Cretans were well-known among the Mediterranean world for being very deficient in. In fact, uh, Crete was known for um, uprisings against the Roman government. They had militias that uh, would try to overthrow the rule there, of the Roman government. And Paul tells the believers in the island of Crete to not absorb that part of Cretan culture, but to stand apart from it. And he says, put them in mind to be subject, to be in submission To be in line with principalities and powers, the authorities, the governments that God has put over them. To obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. And so his thought here, God's thought, the heart behind this passage is their behavior will adorn the gospel, make it attractive to others. And Paul lists seven qualities that were expected of Christian citizens. Do you realize that you as a believer have two citizenships? You have a citizenship of this country that you are a part of, and you also have a citizenship, I'm assuming everybody here is a citizen, but that's not a correct assumption, I understand, um, wherever you're living. Uh, You also have a citizenship that Paul says in Philippians 3 is an eternal citizenship. It's a heavenly citizenship. So you are dual citizens, and you are between two worlds, aren't you? You have the World that will never end, and you have the world that will pass away one day, won't you? And Paul tells Titus, in order to navigate wisely in that world, you need to understand that you have a responsibility of humility and subjection in your community to your authorities. A Christian citizen should be an influence for good in the community in every way. To demonstrate the loveliness of Christ to all, because all are made in the image of Jesus Christ through courteous and gracious behavior. And out of this passage, we're going to see that, that those actions flow out of that lifestyle result from understanding God's grace to you. And so what Titus is to remind the people about the relationships in the world and this life now is that they have a correct relationship to the authorities in particular, and then to everyone in general. Their authorities in verse 1. And then to everybody in general in verse 2. And look what he says about your relationship as a Christian with rulers. Rulers. And you can put in, uh, fill in the blank here who your rulers are in the communities that you live in. The state we all live in. Uh, the nation we all live in. Who are our rulers and authorities? Well, first of all, he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient. As I mentioned, the Cretans were people who were known for insurrections, um, terrorism uh, against the Roman um, uh, government here. And Paul has hinted at their spirit of insubordination in chapter 1 and verse 10, and chapter 1 and verse 16. And now he tells them through Titus that that was part of the old life and it cannot be part of the new life. Through Titus he tells them to be submissive to their rulers. He has already written to Timothy in 1 Timothy about the need to pray for those in authority to the church in Ephesus. And now he writes to Titus about their Christian duty to not just pray for their authorities, but to obey them. To obey them. Not to give an unconditional allegiance because only Jesus is Lord, but to walk in line. As Paul has explained in Romans 13, the state's authority has been delegated Delegated to them by God, whether they realize it or not. And they are to bear <coughs> the sword for, good, for the good of the nation. But it's not enough for Christians simply to be law-abiding. It's not enough. Because he says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates. He says, to be ready to every good work. It's not just enough for us to you know, say, well, I'm following the rules. He says there's more than that for the Christian. There's this whole room that needs to be explored here for the Christian that is, that is a room of, of people who are eager, who are ready, who are not reluctant to do whatever is good in the community whenever we have the opportunity, is what he's saying. So God's people should be willing and ready to cooperate in what is good in our communities. Notice, he says, "Whatever be ready to every good work. He does not say to be ready to every work. Not everything our communities do is good, is it? But he says that the heart of the believer should have a trajectory, should have the compass pointing in a way that we are Ready and eager and not reluctant to be involved in what is good in our community here. That clarifies our responsibility, doesn't it? But it also limits it. It also limits it. We do not cooperate um, um, uh, in things that are promoting evil and opposing good. So that's our responsibility to our government here, to be subject, to obey. And I wonder if where your attitude needs to be corrected in that. Probably, if you're like me, you have a cynic, very cynical view of government. And I lean definitely toward more libertarian views myself. Um, uh, but there are things that need to be corrected and in balance with Scripture. My mind needs to be removed on what the Scripture says. My relationship with government is, and that I'm not always bad-mouthing government, but I am. I am understanding my place in society here, in government, to understand that God has put those people in place whether I agree with everything or not. You know, uh, whenever our guy's in office, whoever that may be, it's a lot easier to get mad at the people who criticize. But what about when your guy wasn't in office? Or isn't in office? Is your spirit and the words you use, does it line up with the spirit of Titus 3, verse one being subject to obeying to be ready to every good work cooperating with what is good but he doesn't just leave it there with our relationship with authorities he pushes it down to a level where everyone is in verse two he says to speak evil of no man to be no brawlers but gentle showing all meekness to all men other words, now he turns our relationship with, uh, to, with, uh, with everybody in the community. How we're to relate to, uh, everybody in our community. Believers or unbelievers here. This is, uh, uh, this is, this starts off here in verse two, he says, with, uh, to speak evil of no man, and then in verse, uh, the end of verse two, he expands, showing all meekness to all men here. So negatively, there are two things that we're to put off. And there, then, positively, there are two things we're to put on. We are not to slander people, and we are to be, uh, uh, um, we are to be peace, peaceable. We're to avoid quarrels. That's the word, brawlers. There, so that means that we must neither speak against or fight against other people unnecessarily. We're not to be offensive or argumentative. Now, I have in me a lawyer spirit. I love to argue. I could argue all day with everybody online all over the place. You know what? What has that accomplished? What has that accomplished? I, I wonder, and, and I, I, John Piper uh, put it this way, he said, um, uh, social media and the internet will, will provide you a way one day when you stand before God to never have an excuse for perilousness. In other words... All, of the, all of the time we waste bantering back and forth with our different opinions. Where in, where in the eternal plan of God and in, in, in spiritual things will God say, boy, I'm glad you won that argument for me in that political point. I don't know what I, what I would have done without you. And I wonder if we are spreading more heat than light in the things that we can tend to gravitate toward. You see here, he, Paul, Paul says, we are to be a people who are peaceable. Does that describe you? When people look at you, they say, you know what, that's a guy who, yeah, he doesn't compromise, but he seeks to make peace. He seeks to make peace. I'm, sometimes I'm embarrassed at myself and embarrassed when I see what other Christians argue about here with unbelievers. And I'm all for standing for truth. But there's a way to do it. And I'm afraid sometimes with our favorite uh, radio pundits or television pundits that we can look at unbelievers as them and make us first them. And that hurts me. And I think it hurts God. Because God wants to see us, I think we'll see the next verse here, as all people who need grace, God's grace. He says, negatively, we are not to slander and we are not to be argumentative. But Positively, we are to be considerate and show true humility toward all men. It means uh the, the the word there in in verse two gentle showing all meekness the word gentle there means to show graciousness, to be people who are 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 show clemency, they're they're gentle, they're gracious. And the second word there, um <coughs> excuse me, uh showing all meekness, has the idea of a gentleness and a humility, a courtesy, a considerateness, a meekness. Does that sound like Jesus? Was Jesus a, guy, a man who, who stood for truth? Was Jesus a man who was also meek and had a gentle spirit? Notice, he says, Show all gentleness to all men, not just the ones who agree with you. There is not to be a limit in our humble courtesy or to the people to whom we are to show it. Think about that. So, who are those people? We all got them, right? Those people. That customer, that boss, that neighbor, that guy, her. Who are those people that you need to move into the all category here? Well, as I look at these characteristics in verses 1 and 2, I think this is a new way here. And the new way is a way of humility, isn't it? If you boil all these things down into one word, isn't it the word humility? the life of Christ, who humbled Himself and came and served others. You might say, well, that's a little hard. I don't know if I can be that way. And that is why, in order to foster this humility, Paul goes into verse 3-7 through and he says this, for we ourselves, us, and Paul doesn't say you, he says me too, we ourselves also were at one time Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and then be hateful and hating one another. He says, you know what? wasn't that long ago, you guys, right? That's what he's saying. Remember when? Remember this is where you lived and then the gospel came to you? That's where you were. And so he lays out the reason why we need humility. And it is because, because... Because when we know what we were once like ourselves, and God nevertheless still saved us, and He will nevertheless continue to transform us, it changes pride and shrinks it, and puts humility in its place. Notice, (coughs) He says, describes us here as... And by the way, verses 4-7 through seven are a single long sentence, all hinged on the verb, He saved us. But He describes these things. He says, we're foolish, disobedient, or deceived. We serve various lusts and pleasures, live in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He, that's a pretty unsavory picture, isn't it? Of our conduct as people apart from grace. And every person who is in this room and every person who has ever been born has been a person at one time, who lived apart from grace, didn't they? They lived apart from God's redeeming, saving, transforming grace. And he gives the very exact image, a very precise image, of human life without grace. We were foolish. We lacked sense. We were disobedient. We were without sensibility. We were deceived. We were enslaved. Um, Not only did we have the responsibility of ourselves being foolish and disobedient, but we were deceived. We were blinded. We weren't only disobedient. We were slaves to sin, to the evil one. Our minds were blinded. The tyrant, uh, the evil one, takes people captive. We were his dupes. We were his slaves. And we lived in malice and envy. Well, what's the difference between malice and envy? Well, they're, they're ugly twins that live together and malice is wishing people evil one is said, and envy is resenting and coveting their good. So malice just wants evil to be done to people. Envy says, I hate, the, I hate the good that's happening to you. I wish that was happening to me. Both are disruptive, and by the way, both are human relationship issues, aren't they? And then fourthly, he says, we were being hated and we were hating one another. Um... Now listen, this was Paul saying this about himself too. This is a guy who kept God's law pretty good, he thought, right? He says, as far as touching Moses' law and keeping the Ten Commandments, people didn't come close to me, he says in Philippians 3. But everything that I did was for the wrong motives. How is it possible to get out of this one mindset and be a people who were once this way and now have been changed? exchange this bondage for freedom and the answer is in verse 5 verse 4 says but after that the kindness and love of God our savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the holy ghost <clears throat> which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our savior That being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's saying, what happened was this. We were this way, verse 3. But there was a time in space and time in history when Jesus Christ, from the, the line the descendant of a Jew named David, left heaven as God, added to His nature the nature of human nature, The one who was chosen to be the Messiah, the promised one of God, who lived righteously, who experienced the uh, humility of humanity, who was crucified for something he never did, who rose glorious from the dead. Who appeared to his disciples, who is exalted at the right hand of God through his ascension, and how he summons all men to come to him through the proclamation of the gospel through the church of Jesus Christ. And this proclamation here requires a response from us that we should repent of our sins, that we would turn to Jesus, that we uh, uh, show the sign of being uh, uh, part of God's children with, with being baptized, and we live in the new life which Jesus is offering, and we're joined to His church. Because one day, Jesus Christ is coming as judge over all humanity. And we need to be prepared and the only way to be prepared is what he says here in verse 5. The kindness, the love of God appeared. And therefore, in verse 5, it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration or renewing of the Holy Ghost. So he lays out, he says, this is what you once were. If you're going to respond this way in verses 1 and 2, You need to remember where you were, and you need to know what God has done to take you out of that life into the new birth. And he said, what you needed was not a makeover. What you needed was not slapping more paint on the barn. What you needed was a total rebirth, and he says that happened through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So first of all, he says, this grace that appeared to all men came out of a source of salvation. A source of salvation. You know, the world teaches basically that you can save yourself. You can be anything you want to be, right? Um, You can reinvent yourself. You can turn over a new leaf. But the possibility of self-salvation is foreign to the Scriptures. We needed someone outside of ourselves to save us. And Paul says here that it was God our Savior. God our Savior. And he traces our salvation right back to its source in the love of God. He says in verse 4, when what? The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. That word love there is a love of God toward man. Philanthropia. is love toward man. This salvation originated in the heart of God. God would have been perfectly just to let us go on in verse 3. But He didn't. He stepped into us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? God joined humanity. He added the human nature to His glory. And He died on the cross for our sins. He took the initiative. He came after us and He rescued us from a predicament that verse 3 says was pretty hopeless. That was the source of salvation. What is the ground of salvation? Well... I think as you grow in maturity, and people ask you how did you get saved, you start to say less of "I accepted Jesus as my savior," and you start to define your salvation in terms of what God has done for you. Nothing wrong with saying "I accepted Jesus as my savior," etc., here, but you need to start to look at what God has done for you. That is salvation here. You put your trust in what God has done for you. Now, what has God done for you? Well, Ephesians, or excuse me, Titus three. Uh, verse 5 says, not by works of righteousness, you didn't rescue yourself, but according to His mercy, it is by the merciful hand of God that He saved you. By the washing of regeneration, renewing the Holy Ghost. In other words, what is the ground on which your salvation, your rescue rests? Is it, is it, uh, is it your moral basis that you are a pretty good guy and God says, you know what, I want you on my team. No, not according to this. That according to verse 3, another passage here, it was the mercy of God. And what did that mercy lead him to do? It led him to send his Son. To send his Son. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared in a person. A person. Not simply some words, but a person who was the Word of God to us. What was the means of salvation? The means of salvation. Well, <clears throat> it says he saved us because of his mercy, and he did it by through the washing of regeneration. And I'm wondering what that word means, I'll simply keep it very simple. And me- it means this: it means rebirth, rebirth, being born again, rebirth. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five through thirty-two. God told Israel that one day he would take their stony heart the heart that was so resistant against God, and he would cut it out. And he would put in its place a heart that was submissive to God, a new, clean heart. A heart that was washed with the water and the Spirit of God. And that's what he's referring to. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the new birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus, (coughs) the most religious man there probably in in all of... um, In all of Judea, he said, you, who look like you have it all together on the outside, you need to be born again. You must be born again. And friends, when we talk about being saved, when we talk about being rescued, that's what we're talking about. We are talking about being regenerated. About being reborn. Not just simply, oh, I'm attaching Jesus to my life now. You needed more than attaching Jesus to your life. You needed work from the inside out. You needed to be reborn. And only God could do that. You can't do that. It wasn't you couldn't you couldn't do 50, uh, uh, 50 good deeds and earn and earn a badge for this. No. God had to take that dirty heart, that heart described in verse 3 foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving your own lust and nature, and he had to take it, and he had to cut it out. And he put it on his son at the cross and Christ paid for that sin. And then he had to give his Holy Spirit and implant within you a new heart. So friends, when we're talking about being saved in our salvation testimony, that's what you're talking about. God has made me new. He has put within me a new heart. And not everything, (laughs) not everything in my life lines up perfectly with how God called with what God has done for me but that's why the God gives the new testament so I walk worthy then of this vocation this new calling that I've been called and friends the beautiful word here of regeneration is a word that's used in Matthew 19 of what the new creation will be when God finishes it all and says it's all done and so your heart your regenerated heart listen to this is a glimpse of the new creation it's really the only glimpse of the new creation we'll get in this life. But a regenerated heart that has been changed from the depraved nature to now glorifying God is a glimpse to what eternity will be like. So much so that Paul can say in Second Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. God's not just prepared us He's making all things new. Amen. Making all things new. And so the beauty of regeneration is a new heart. Um, but, and, and, and He, and he and expands on that, reminds us that we haven't arrived, and that's why we need the continual renewing, He says, and renewing of the Holy Ghost. You know, we're still living in this broken world, Right? We still need to be fine-tuned, to live according up to the qualifications that we now have. To, to have the engine and the sludge uh, cleaned out so, so that we are uh, uh, living in accordance with, with what He has called us to. And notice, it wasn't just the Son of Jesus who died on the cross for you. But it was the Holy Spirit who applies this to you. Holy Spirit applies. Look what He says in verse 5. Renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed in that Word as He poured out abundantly. He poured on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Friends, if you have been saved, you means you have been regenerated. You have been given a new heart. You've been reborn. And God has poured out His love upon you in another person, the person of the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of you, so that verse 7 says result of this <coughs> is that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He declares you righteous, he, he declares you righteous through the sin bearing death of his son. Uh, regeneration is he, make, he makes us righteous through the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit, and you need both. You need both. And they both come in one instant at salvation. And God puts you into the family. Because He says you're made heirs. And you're made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Your spiritual life will never end. And one day when it's all said and done, God will raise your, 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 your body, He'll resurrect your body, and He will bring it in conformity with a perfect spirit here and a perfect body, and you'll live forever in eternal glory and the eternal new creation. That's the hope of eternal life why does Paul say all that? And I'm going to wrap up with this, verse 8. This is why he says it. Because if he calls us to a new way, we have to understand the dynamics that needed that to happen in order to cultivate that sense of humility by living in God's grace through the new birth. And now, thirdly here, he calls us (coughs) and asks us, really, in effect, so what is your salvation for? What is it for? And the answer is in verse 8. This is a faithful saying. This is trustworthy. You can bank on it. It is true. And these things I will or I want that you affirm constantly to your people that they which have believed in God. So they which have believed in God would be people who have been changed And verses 3-7. through 7. The ones who are at one time this way in verse 3. But now the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared and it's not by their works of righteousness but in the trust of of what God has done, and He has changed them by His mercy, He has washed them, He has poured out His Spirit on them, given them a new heart. So those which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So now he brings it home again, doesn't he? Now he brings it home. What kind of good deeds here? Well, that verb translated careful is the idea of devoted. How many of you are devoted to a certain football team that shall not be named? <laughs> or maybe you're devoted to a certain body product, a care product, or a certain brand, or a certain clothing brand, or maybe men like this brand of tools, that's what you, that's what you live and die with, right? Or a specific brand of truck or car or whatever it is. You're devoted, like you're, 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 you're a fanboy, or fangirl, whatever. Love it. Well, here in the Scripture, Paul says that God's people, who God has poured out Himself in His Son, He has poured out Himself in His, <coughs> excuse me, in His Spirit, and He is looking forward to bring His family together again in Him. They should be careful. They should be devoted, be passionate. He said in verse fourteen of chapter two, be zealous of good works. Of, z- of good works. Why? Because it's not enough to have the tongue that says, I'm with Jesus. Our life needs to show that as well. Our life needs to show that as well. And so, these good works here, this idea occurs 14 times in these pastoral epistles. I'm not going to go through them all. But the point of it is, that an understanding that our need was uh, 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 for salvation was because of our sin, guilt, and slavery. Our source was because of God's gracious, loving kindness. Our grounds for that is not our merit, but God's mercy in the cross. And the means that He accomplished this was through Jesus and the regenerating, renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And the goal is that a final inheritance of new life, the evidence of that is diligent practice of good works to one another as a community of believers who who are, are devoted to each other. But not only that, because of what we just saw in verses 1 and 2. Being people who are, verse 1 says, ready to do every good work. Embracing what is good and being involved in it. And once we embrace the truth that our salvation is past, it is present, and it is future. It is past because of what God has (coughs) has done for us. It is present because we live in this new life. Uh, of, of good works that are empowered now by the Holy Spirit that flow now out. And it is future because of the inheritance of eternal life, which will one day be ours. We have an A through Z understanding of salvation. We might not have all the dots connected, but we understand the beginning and we understand the end. we understand what our salvation is for. And in one word, you can explain what that is. And it is change. Change. Let's pray.